0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List, the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This week, I'm talking with Amy Blankson, author of The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. If you're like me, you've probably had some sort of love-hate relationship with technology in your life. Amy and I talk about How to get the pros out of technology and how to place boundaries and buffers and even changes in perspective to keep us from the cons of technology. This is an episode all about learning to stay grounded as we plug in using the technology that we feel like we have and often don't. Have a choice of using in our lives and how to be productive while using it. One of the pieces of technology that I use and don't get used by is Evernote. I use it to brainstorm, drop links in, ideas, organize, plan, make action lists, and much more. Many use Evernote, but few actually use it to its full potential. Mastering Evernote is as easy as grabbing Brett Kelly's Evernote Essentials at com slash Evernote and putting into practice what he shares. Brett's been on the show twice before, and he's my go-to guy when it comes to this insanely useful tool. Again, you can grab his book over at com slash Evernote. Again, Evernote is one of those tools that I use multiple times a day on a daily basis in order to use technology and then back away from it and not be used by it. I think you really need to rediscover what Evernote can do for you, and you can do that again with his book, beyondthetodolist.com slash Evernote. Check it out. And now, enjoy this conversation with Amy Blankson. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome Amy Blankson to the show. Welcome to the show, Amy.
1: Thank you so much, Eric. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So your new book, The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era, that's right up my alley. I was thrilled to read this. I have had a love hate relationship with technology my whole life, as I kind of get the impression that you have as well. I'm wondering, where do you fall on this? I'm in the kind of borderline between Generation X and Millennials. So that has a little bit of an effect on this because, you know, I grew up not having technology and then starting to have it more and more as mm-hmm. time came on. So
1: absolutely. I think I'm in the same boat with you. I actually got to play with the Mac classic when I was five years old, which was on the early end of of uh, access to computers at that point. My dad was a professor of neuroscience at Baylor University. And so they cycled through a lot of the, the latest technology that came through. And I remember sitting on my dad's lap and him showing me how to fill up the screen with a fence pattern and then print it out on a dot matrix printer. And I was amazed. Um, <laughs> so I remember when technology started into my life, but I uh, can't imagine it without it now.
0: Totally, and and it's completely different for our kids. And even um, for example, I have a twelve-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, and there's a big difference even between how technology has permeated their lives, even in just that short amount of time.
1: Absolutely, I have a nine, seven, and four-year-old, and I notice the same thing that the the three different children all have different perspectives on technology, as well as different perspectives on how boundaries have entered their life. I've noticed. My 9-year-old is a lot more resistant to having boundaries around screen time and technology in her life because she had a little more open access for just a little bit longer whereas the 7 and 4-year-old will often say to me, "Oh mommy, I'm out of screen time. Here's my tablet." Oh <laughs> I'm wow. Like, oh well, <laughs> yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, so that's I the think- yeah. That's that's the opposite for my kids. My twelve-year-old may be a little bit more compliant, and my five-year-old's like, no, I want it back. Yeah, because I think we we went the opposite direction because we we had less of it when she was younger, at about his age. So she's more used to it, although she has her issues. Um, But that may just be the the age she's entering into a little bit.
1: Absolutely. But then with him, yeah. Because my my nine year old, so the iPhone came out just about 10 years ago. My daughter turns 10 this month. And so at the moment when the iPhone hit, when she was born, (laughs) it all happened at the same time the enthusiasm, the pendulum swinging to total adoption and excitement about this new technology. So I think she's just behind where you're your 12-year-old was in terms of generation gap
0: so your book is all about this living with the complexity of technology and not escaping from it it's this giant gray area of what aspects of technology are beneficial to us and in what ways and and what aspects are detrimental to us and how can we Lean into the good side and you know avoid the the downside and that's all about what you guys are doing over at Goodthink. Can you explain a little bit about your work there?
1: Sure, so Goodthink is a positive psychology consulting firm. And we try to take the research that's coming out of the field in real time and translate it into language and practical applications for the general public and specifically employees and individuals and organizations. And so what that means is that when a study comes out about stress, we try to help as many people learn the results from it as fast as possible. Because what we saw happening in the field was that there was some amazing research going on about uh, mindfulness and about gratitude and all of these things that we've, we've heard are good, but we didn't have any new information about how to use it in our lives. And so we're trying to go from academia to real life instantaneously and get the message out. And for a long time, we've been focusing around um, economic uncertainty. Good Think got started in 2007, same year as the iPhone, same year as my daughter was born. When we started to look into helping people get access to this information, the economic recession had just hit, and so there was a lot of frustration. There were layoffs. The mortgage industry was collapsing. The auto industry was failing, and so people were really worried about where we're heading, and so I felt like that research was really important at that time. What we've noticed since then is that the concerns have shifted dramatically away from economics and towards digital distraction, and an uncertain technological future. I think people are both fascinated by artificial intelligence and virtual reality and augmented reality, and they're also terrified of it, right? They're, they have no idea what it means, what it's going to look like in their lives. Are robots going to take their job? Are robots going to invade their homes? Are their kids going to become zombie automatons? And so what I wanted to do was to take some of this fear-based conversation and ground it in actual statistics and research and as well as looking at emerging technology so that i could both quell people's minds that we're not going to be taken over by some digital apocalypse but also to bring people to call them to the mat to say hey it's time that we start being really intentional about where we're heading because we have a choice it's like a fork in the road right now where we can either go all in with technology without really thinking thoughtfully about it and then we'll find ourselves defaulting and reacting to the pressures that are happening within the market. Or we can be really intentional and start saying, hey, we want something different out of technology in our lives. We want to create healthy boundaries. We want to associate well-being and technology. We want to use technology for its best and highest purposes. So what do we need to do right now in our lives to set ourselves on that track towards a better future? And so that's what the whole book is about. It's really from a theoretical perspective and a philosophical perspective, asking these bigger questions. But it's also about what can I do right now in the next five minutes to make my life different so that I can get on that path. And so I try to, to walk that fine line there of practicality and big picture at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I love that because really some of the practicality is going to change based on individuality and you can only really gain awareness of your own context in your usage of technology by asking those bigger philosophical and theoretical questions of yourself.
1: Absolutely. And sometimes I think Eric, that we take sort of a blanket approach, either technology is all good or it's all bad, or I use I'm an early adopter or I'm a complete resistor. And I think there's a lot of room for gray space in between there. What we're finding is that some people are actually, Uh, early adopters, they're they're, um, tech embracers in one domain of their life, and they're tech resistors in another domain of their life. Meaning if you're, I I actually have a good friend who's a surgeon out in Silicon Valley. And when he's in the operating room, he is always using the latest technology available because it really has a purpose for him. Whereas when he's at home, he insists upon using his flip phone to the annoyance of all of the (laughs) other staff at his hospital who have to page him old fashioned and in the old fashioned way. And they can't get a hold of him or send him text messages or photos. Um, but he does it for a reason because he doesn't want to embrace technology in his home. He doesn't think he needs it and he doesn't want his kids to have it. And so that's a very personal choice. We also see that not only does it depend on the domain that you're living in, but it depends on the phase of life you're in. If there's certain periods in which you might be more involved in technology and other periods where you're not, um, might be more screen time when you're investing in a a really good book and other periods where you get really busy at work and you just don't have time or you don't want to see (laughs) any more technology in your life. So this gray area really helps us fill in, okay, where, where am I at in the spectrum? And if you know the right questions to ask about yourself, you can help inform yourself better. So what is so important about this is that I write in the book about how sometimes we run right off of what I call the happiness cliff, like Wiley e. Coyote would in the old Looney Tunes episodes where he's just trying to chase after the roadrunner so fast that he runs right off of a cliff, looks down and realizes his legs are still moving, but the cliff has dropped out from beneath him. And of course, he splats to the bottom of a canyon every time. And uh, while he is fortunate enough to get up from that each time, we aren't always so quick to rebound when we burn out. And so what I want people to do is to think about where is the edge of your happiness cliff? Where's the point of using technology where your point of diminishing return is at its maximum utility? So if I'm face- surfing Facebook, maybe at first it's really useful for me and I'm I'm using it to de-stress, I'm using it to catch up and connect with friends it's wonderful for about twenty minutes, but if I'm still using it an hour later, most likely I've passed my point of maximum utility, and my 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 uh, the law of diminishing returns says that my utility curve has gone steeply down. It's actually using my time and my energy inefficiently and leading me right off the happiness cliff. I think as adults, that's the kind of theoretical language that we resonate with, but for kids, they aren't as aware aware of where the happiness cliff is. And the only way you know where it is, is when you try to take a device out of their hands. And then they throw this massive tech tantrum. And you look at them as though they're some (laughs) creature from outer space, like who has my child turned into, right? (laughs) So that point, you know, they've passed the happiness cliff. But our goal in raising the next generation should be, how do we know where the happiness cliff is? How do we set up some invisible boundaries so that we don't throw ourselves over that edge on a regular basis, but we can really tune into what am I using technology for? When am I using it? How am I using it? Why am I using it? And then to be able to have a mantra where you're actually asking all the time, is this helping me or is it hurting me? Is it helpful or is it not helpful in my life? Is it moving me towards my goals or not? And I think the more that we can think about those questions, the more effective we're going to be at using technology well.
0: And I think this, that's the great approach to it because we know technology can be bad for us, but we have no intention of not using it at all. We're not going to become Luddites, but right. uh, we know that it, you know, technology is not going away, so how do we in a healthy way become – uh, different versions of that, you know, th- that spectrum of embracing or accepting or resisting. And I've been all three. And I think, I think at this point in time, I am all three of those, like you said, towards different aspects of technology. dot com slash to do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the the way that we can start to think about this is that when people talk about technology creating this sort of doomsday scenario for the future, whether it's screen time is now like digital heroin or our children's social relationships and the fabric of our society are eroding. I think that language is sensationalist. It's used for a reason because it piques people's interest and it gets them to read an article. But from a, a perspective of what's helping us move forward in our lives, I don't buy it. And I don't think that language is helpful to us Um, a lot of times people talk about Pandora's box as though we've released some sort of evil and pestilence into the world by introducing technology into our lives. And some people actually, they do want to stuff technology back in a box. I think they would go back to the old days of the rotary phone if they could possibly do it. Um, but I, I really don't think that that's a legitimate solution. I think technology is ubiquitous. It's here to stay. And like you said, the question is how do we use it more effectively? And, If you remember the history of Pandora's box, when evil was released into the world, very few people remember the story, but it's at the bottom of Pandora's box is actually the only thing left in the box is hope. And that hope is something that can use us to fuel us forward and say, okay, if all of these things came out, what can we use that hope for? What can we use to create a real sense of not only peace, but happiness in the future? And so what I've done with my research and and my, my writing is to really look into how do we begin to use technology better? And there's a whole strategy in the book dedicated to how we can use technology to actually train our brains in a helpful way to be more tuned in with our sense of happiness, whether that's learning how to savor more or be more thankful or aspire or giving more or empathizing. There's some fantastic research coming out now that says that these skill sets are things that we can not only learn to do better, but that certain games online can actually help our brains to learn how to scan our environment to begin to retrain neural pathways that we've defaulted to before, but now we can be really intentional about what we want to do in the future. And I think that's tremendously exciting. We've got this confluence of the technological revolution and the cognitive revolution that have for the first time in history, given us this ability to peel back the layers of our mind, to peel, to peer into our thought processes and our intentions and our goal setting. And if we have this information at our fingertips, it sure would be a shame if we didn't use it. So what I want to do is I want to I want to know what the latest research is saying about how fMRI studies are saying how gratitude can can change the way that our neural pathways are working and how different ways of journaling can actually help increase the neuroplasticity of our mind. I want to be on the forefront of that trend because I think… Specifically, I mean if I can get personal for a minute, I've watched my my father go through a process over the last year where he recently got a diagnosis of epilepsy, but for 2 days on Christmas Eve day, he actually lost his memory and it was terrifying to him. Um, he's recently retired and he was shocked to find that memory was something that could so quickly go. But because he is himself is a neuroscientist, he really Took some time to um, study his own EEG results to see what's going on in his brain to really start to to intentionally work towards regaining memory and keeping his neural processes at their their fittest level in the same way we train our bodies. He wants to train his mind because he knows how valuable that is to him, how important memory and. Cognitive processes and our thought process is to being able to be our best self, and so I've watched him go through that process. It's inspired me, and it's made me want to do the same thing for my mind. How do I stay at my my utmost brain fitness and greatest happiness level?
0: I was uh, really amused slash I don't know what the right word is, but when you told the story in the book about your husband and your father playing chess.
1: could you relate to that one yourself? (laughs) I could
0: yeah so if you wouldn't mind maybe telling a little bit about the, the upside and the downside of that story.
1: Sure thing so when I got married to my husband he was my husband was a little bit shy around my dad and and vice versa and so I was thrilled when the two of them started to bond over this chess with friends app and I found that they started to engage in ways I wasn't even facilitating their conversation or their connection. They were, they were starting to text all the day long about not only what's going on in the chess game, but you know, a little bit of trash talking and then a whole lot of what's going on in life. And he talked to my dad more than I did at that point. And so I was like, yes, score one for technology. That's amazing. And then at some point they started to overdo it with chess with friends. I mean, I would find them hiding in the bathroom trying to finish a chess game or I'd be having a conversation and neither one of them was looking me in the eye because they were sitting in the same room together playing chess on their phones. And so I started to throw a bit of a a fit (laughs) and I was like, okay, technology, you're losing points here. Um, And so they eventually put the phone down. They started to interact more in real life, which was amazing, um, until they discovered Words with Friends app, and the whole cycle started again. (laughs) So... We see this ebb and flow of technology. I think they they crossed off the happiness cliff, or at least my personal happiness cliff for them. <laughs> um, and they had to learn a little bit of boundaries about how much is too much to engage. But in the process, there was some really quality bonding going on there that wouldn't have happened in their lives had they not had technology to facilitate that that bonding in the in the meantime. So I thought that was pretty pretty cool.
0: I think it also kind of shows that. Though most people would say, "Oh my gosh!" Like teens these days, they grow up with they've (laughs) grown up with nothing but technology, so they're the one they're the ones who are addicted to it. But I think it also goes to show that uh, even though them at their age have grown up in this time period, where again you know the last ten years, fifteen years, even with other types of technology, where it's been you know ubiquitous, we've not still i think gotten to the point where we have figured out how to have technology etiquette i guess in some ways where we don't have that locked in just yet and we shouldn't be so quick to point the finger to well teens don't it's all teens it's because adults quickly over the last 10 years uh, and i've seen stories of this like my 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 friend uh his father (laughs) um came to visit him and he forgot his phone at home and wouldn't stop thinking about that he'd left it at home
1: and mm. had
0: to uh you know, it kept think it kept coming up like like it was a missing a missing limb. You know what I mean? Like we'd gotten exactly. so used to that. And then the other that I've noticed is, and even in myself personally, is even if I'm going somewhere that I know how to get there, I will still look it up on GPS. We have unlearned what we used to know and we've relearned this new way of being so dependent. And so adults whatever age are just as guilty of this as people who have grown up not knowing any differently. And we all need to approach it from, you know, asking these questions of, you know, how do we use technology to thrive in this digital era? How, what should we be using technology for? What should we not be using technology for?
1: You're so right. You know, I think that it's easy to point fingers at the teenagers with Snapchat, and yes, they do have an issue. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to argue about that one, but I do think that the issue might just look different for different age groups, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of sleeping with a phone by our bed at night, at, especially for our generation, that we justify our use of technology and our overuse of technology because we think it's helping make us more productive. I actually call it phony productivity though because um not to be too punny but <laughs> <laughs> I am a funny person. Um but we wind up sleeping with our phone at night. We bring it to bed, we look at it first thing in the morning. We're checking the news feed before we ever look at our spouse or our children in the morning. We've got emails coming through at 11, 12 o'clock at night. We actually, there was a recent phone survey done um, smartphone users and one third of the respondents actually said that they would pick up their phone during sex. I mean, that's a whole nother level of addiction and uh, issues going on, all kinds of issues that I think speak to the volume of the problem, but also the difference in our generation's use of technology. We don't have that space and boundaries. In fact, so many young people today, from the 10 and under set, actually accuse their parents of over oversharing on Facebook because they say their parents don't have good boundaries. And of course, parents would say the same thing about their kids, but it's really convicting to hear it from the kids to, that, that we have an issue. And when we look at ourselves, it becomes something where we realize that we're just we're just in uncharted territory. and It's not an excuse, but it's really a statement of our time that we have never had to have boundaries before. This is all new to us. So what do we need to do to create better boundaries now that we see the issues arising, now that we see where we're heading? Let's just put some things in place so that we can be better at focusing and setting intentions and reaching our goals so that it's not phony productivity, but, but real productivity and real well-being as well.
0: Well, yeah, technology can do so much for our productivity, but we don't stop to think what specifically we're using it for in terms of that productivity.
1: Exactly. And some some of this, I'm going to give credit to developers of software and technology as well, that they've designed highly addictive games. I mean, there's a, a person uh, named Tristan Harris out at Stanford, and he started a company called Time Well Spent that helps highlight a new business model for tech startups that doesn't focus on how often companies are getting page views or how many unique signups they're getting or how how many people are on their mailing list. Their stockholders are actually measuring their app's effectiveness based on whether it actually works, whether it actually makes us more happy or more productive. And I wish more companies would come to that idea. I mean, this whole idea of how many page views you have is pretty, pretty new measure of whether or not you're an effective startup. But I think that measurement is driving companies to create more and more addictive software as opposed to more and more helpful software. And so, yes, some of the blame comes to us, but some of it also comes to developers who I think could create a better product that is designed to make us happier and not just not just customers
0: so what are some of the practical ways let's talk about this a bit how can we approach this distraction and addiction and uh without again without just saying oh technology is bad like technology is good so how can we kind of strike the right balance here as digital citizens
1: so i think I'm a, I'm a researcher, right? So I love numbers. And I think that to be able to make quantifiable change, to see real change in your life, you have to have a baseline number, right? So for me, one of the most effective baseline numbers to take was the number of times that I open and close my phone every day. A study recently done by the Pew Internet uh, Research Study said that the average smartphone user opens and closes their phone 150 times a day which sounds shocking a bit. But when you think about each time you open and close that phone, if we optimistically assume that it would only take you know one minute to open, check a message and close your phone again, that's two and a half hours of our day every day, just opening and closing our phones or the equivalent of 38 days a year. I mean, that is Unconscionable in my life. That's that's not how I want to be spending my time. And so, what I started to do was to set a baseline first. Of okay, how many times am I opening and closing my phone? Am I actually above the average or am I below the average? And so, I downloaded this app called Break Free that helped me track my opening and closing of my phone for just one week. All I wanted was a baseline. And so, once I knew that I was way above the average. (laughs) I did write this book to myself as a a letter to myself to help create better boundaries. But um, then I knew, okay, so now I know how many times if I'm unlocking my phone 200 times a day, I only wanna be unlocking it 100 times. What am I gonna do to get there? And so some very practical things I did was to, A, I started to create a, a lock screen on my phone that helped me remember before I swiped open on my phone, The lock screen says has a green arrow pointing to the right that says towards my goals and a red arrow to the left saying away from my goals. And if my swiping to the right led me toward my goals, I would open my phone. And if it didn't, I would tuck it back into my pocket. And that simple gut check helped me to cut down on the number of times I was opening and closing my phone. For other people, it might mean setting an intention of creating a phone stack around the dinner table and making some sort of follow-up, like whoever touches their phone and the phone stack first misses out on dessert. Or other people I know have set an intention in the morning or a rule that they won't look at their phone before they look at their, their husband or their spouse or their children first thing. So some simple reminders to yourself. We find that if you write down these reminders, it makes you 42% more likely to actually follow through on them. So just a recap, number one, I set a baseline of how many times I'm using my phone. Two, I set some intentions around how often I wanted to be using it. And then three, I started to really think through the technology that was helping me and I wanted to make it more accessible to me and I wanted to take away some of the technology that wasn't helping me. So, in other words, the technology that wasn't helping me were notifications that. I ignore anyway, so I just turn them off. I tried to turn off all non-essential notifications. Then I turned off all the news feeds that weren't helping me um, or that I wasn't actually reading. And then thirdly, I went through and I used a service called unroll.me that enables you to unsubscribe for as many emails as possible all in one fell swoop. So rather than going through and unsubscribing one at a time, that service helped me just to blanket unenroll from everything, which was very helpful. And then if I wanted to re-enroll, I could, but it made it that much harder to have all these distractions in my life, trying to cut back. And those three simple steps were probably the the best jumpstart to helping me regain my sense of focus at work and also to really begin to get a grasp on following through on using technology for good purposes.
0: What about some of these types of steps that would work well for our kids? I know that you uh, would hand your daughter, one of them at least, a book in the grocery store instead of your phone.
1: Yes. That helps my kids, but it led me back up a step because I actually had to set an intention myself that I was going to take the harder, higher route to helping my kids develop better boundaries. And by that I mean – when I was going to the grocery store what I would do is I wanted to get through my grocery list as fast as possible so I would hand my daughter a phone and put her in the in the, the cart so that I could zip through and keep my focus in the grocery store. And I, what I realized is that's not how I wanted to engage with my daughter. I could be teaching her about the food in the grocery store or I could be talking to her or she could be reading. So I started with myself. I made an intention that I was going to make my grocery trips possibly a little bit harder, but I was going to have more quality time with my daughter. And second step was I set the intention with my daughter. I told her today, we're not going to do phones in the grocery. Here's a book. And I thought she was going to fight me a little bit, I probably 30 seconds of fighting. And then all of a sudden, she was really into her own book. And she was excited about reading. And she was excited about what was happening in the grocery store. And so that was really a very helpful and effective way for me to make the shift. And what I found was that my fears that the grocery trip was going to be harder were actually completely unfounded. When I actually engaged my daughter, it was actually one of the easiest grocery trips of all, and she got bonus points from the checkout line because the checkout um, woman had actually said that that she had not seen children reading in the grocery line in so long, so she gave my daughter a sticker. Um, And so it was a win-win all the way around, but it really started with me getting over my fear of I won't be able to get things done and refocusing on quality time and who I wanted to be as a parent.
0: See, and all of that doesn't necessarily have specifically to do with technology. It's just that technology can be a part of it, but it's also about like a a perspective change of what you really want. Exactly. How can we approach this from, say, a a workplace or a workspace and environment view? What, What do we need to do there?
1: So there's a lot of strategies in the books, but in the book, but one of my favorite strategies that I learned about in my research was called the, the science of mere presence. And the idea of mere presence is that sometimes an object in our environment actually impacts us without us even knowing. And so recently, a mere presence study was done of a smartphone. And what they found is that if you're working on your laptop or at your desktop and you have your phone sitting right beside your computer, which we often do... What, pe- what they found was that individuals who had their phone on their desk and didn't even look at it or even touch it were less effective than those individuals who did not have a phone in their visual line of sight. And I found that to be fascinating because what they what they discovered was that the mere presence of the phone triggered this impulse that we might get a message, we might get an email, we might get a call. And so we needed to be paying a little bit of attention to it. Um, I think Cal Newport would call that attention residue, that we're trying to really reserve a little bit of attention just to keep looking over at our phone, just in case. And as a result, our effectiveness would decrease by as much as 11 times because of that. And so what I do now is I actually either put my phone in a bag beside my chair or I hide it behind my screen so that I can really focus in on what I'm trying to do. Such a simple strategy, but I think even in conversations, when we're talking to a colleague, you can tell that if you're having a conversation with no phone in hand or in between you, you often look at each other in the eye. However, if you have a phone, if you each have a phone in your hand, the impulse to pick it up and check information or to text each other or to do to do different interactions on the phone is that much higher. And so if you're trying to increase your quality time with colleagues or your effectiveness or charisma in the workplace, putting your phone somewhere where it's not between you and the person you're trying to connect with or what you're trying to do makes it that much more effective.
0: I've actually heard I don't remember where there was a group of people, a couple a group of couples and they Hired one babysitter, which I mean, you know, the the logistics of this are a little bit messy in my mind as a parent. But a group of couples, they all got together. They said, "Okay, we're going to hire one babysitter to watch all our kids, and only one of us out of all of us in the group is going to have a phone in case of emergency that that babysitter can get a hold of the gr- anybody in the group from, and then nobody else would have it, and and even then." They, that one person was like the strongest willed of all of them or whatever. And so that's one way to go about even having like a date night where you're fully present with the group, you know?
1: Ooh, I love that. I love that. That's such a great idea. I'm going to share that one with my audiences. Thank you.
0: There you. Are. There you go. There's so much more philosophical and theoretical roads to go down with this topic and even practical help in staying grounded as we plug in, as you put it, in the book called The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well Being in the Digital Era. Amy, it has been awesome to talk with you, and I hope we can continue this conversation into the future, because I know this is a topic that's not going away.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric.
0: And I will put all the links to the book and everything in the show notes for this episode so everybody can go and get it because you really need to be thinking about these things. Thanks, Amy.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric.
0: You can check out the show notes for this episode by going over to beyondthetodolist.com slash 170. And you can check out that episode with Cal Newport over at com slash 169. If either of these episodes are making you think and helping you discover how to have a healthier relationship with technology in your life, please consider going over to those show notes and clicking the share button, whether that's to share it on social media or to send it to somebody specifically and directly through a Facebook message, a Twitter tweet or direct message or even an email, letting someone that you know that would benefit from those episodes know to go check those out. I would really appreciate it, and I hope that the person that you would share that with would appreciate it as well. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I really appreciate it. I'll see you next episode.